before I start, I just want to say that this story requires audience participation, like beyond the laughing and the groaning. It also comes with a content warning. Which you won't, you won't do either. <laughs> but I'd like, whenever I say we, if you're a millennial in the room, if you could just process that and think that I'm talking about you and me. We, we are the we. Are there children? Okay, I'd like that child to pay, pay close attention because <laughs> this story is really, they're the subject. If you are above that, if you're uh, Gen X or a boomer, I just want you to know the story doesn't involve you in any way. Um, and I don't know what you want to do. Maybe, do you have Facebook on your phone? You can, you can look. I won't be offended. Um, all right. That big report we've been waiting for has come out. Maybe you've seen it. It is explicit. Our world will be unlivable in 30 years. We come together to talk about our options. Discussions are intense. The we is us, millennials. We vote to radicalize and become accelerationists or something like that. We will not be bent into austerity by the failures of past generations. That's a shadow. That's the one shadow. It's pretty right on if you think about it. We live as hard as we can, while we can, and consume without any hang-ups. Part of this excess results in children, a new generation on a doomed planet. So we raise our children ready to die. It's a decent thing to do. We love our children, so we encourage their death drives and glorify the short life. And so our beautiful children lack a respect for life that makes them intense from an early age. They burn especially brightly, and we accept this trade-off for them. While they are becoming preteen terrorists, we are napping through our foretold final days when a machine emerges, defying all expectation and hope that saves us from our self-made doom. Won't want. We don't totally understand how this works, but then again, we don't need to. So we're to face no repercussions. Our timeline once again extends into infinity. So our radical politics have paid off, and we slip irretrievably into comfort. But our children suffer. They're stranded in life now. Pregnant teens, the most nihilistic of them all, always, um, are suddenly mothers, and the future weighs on them. So our children grow awkwardly into adults. They must navigate a sophisticated technocracy that does not require labor, but asks much of their patients. They don't visit much, but that's okay. We're busy eating, fucking, and enjoying ourselves fully. Then our children's children are born and immediately sour. Their comfortable lives leave them soft and life-clinging. They bear no resemblance to their parents. So our children now approach ugly middle age, the curse of interventionist technology. I don't mean middle-aged people are all ugly. I mean it's ugly that they weren't supposed to get to this point. <laughs> I can think of a few attractive middle-aged people. Um, so they look at us, millennials, their hedonistic and simple-minded parents and are disgusted. They look at their own floppy children and are repelled. 
And so our children have a meeting. Discussions are intense. Our clever and violent children destroy the delicate machinery that has kept us from extinction. The same night, they come into our rooms and, rather mercifully, smother us in our sleep. So now we can't be sure what happens next. We're dead. But it is our collective belief that our beloved children then walked hand in hand into the ocean, leaving behind their own young children to live or die in a world not of their making, as is the decent thing to do, as we all do, as all you old breeders have already done. That Big Report was originally read by Bailey Sharp at Read To Me, a comics night in Sydney. This is Already Didn't Happen. Stories from Sydney and beyond. I'm Sasha Rosen. The next story you're going to hear, Lao, by Frances Ann, comes with a content warning for adult concepts. But there are also some creepy acts by creepy men. Lao, noun, whole. Verb, to lose in business. A cockroach lies on its back below the Hell Girl poster blue-tack to the side of my desk. The soundtrack for Kakarika Village from The Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds, croons from my laptop which displays a PowerPoint slide about psychotic disorders. I tear out a page from the 2011 edition of Medical Observer, lying in the corridor to dispose of the cockroach. The page features photos of emphysema that look like ant holes in raw meat. Mum said to keep Medical Observer because One of these days, Dad will read it. But a 2011 edition probably contains outdated medical knowledge. I squat beside the desk with the paper in my hand. The cockroach's underbelly is mahogany and striated like a trilobite. My stomach tightens as I imagine its wings flittering in a brown blur against my face. But I am the family cockroach killer. Last night, I shoved a cockroach down the kitchen sink with a pair of chopsticks. Its antennae poked up through the plug hole as I continued washing dishes over it. The trumpet grumbles. Taking up the melody for Kakarika Village. I'm used to hearing this music in the game, along with an accompaniment of squawking chickens and Link screaming, Yeah! 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 as he slashes them with his sword. The cockroach's antenna brushes the floor, but I can't tell if it's still alive or whether that was just my breath. One time, my mother gave me a napkin to pick up a dead cockroach that was lying along the edge of the bathtub. I realized that it was still alive when I could feel its prickly legs writhing. Its exoskeleton crunched as I squished it between my fingertips. A creamy substance seeped through the napkin, touching my skin. I grab a bottle of palmolive detergent from the kitchen and bring it into my room. I'm sure this will kill the cockroach because when I was in year four, I dumped a garden snail in the bathroom sink. The hand soap pump went squit, squit, squit 
as I doused the snail's foot in green detergent. The snail withdrew right into its shell while secreting white foam. When I ran cold water over it, the snail's body had vanished. I drizzle a stream of yellow detergent over the cockroach's body. The cockroach's mouth pulsates, reminding me of my vagina, which I scrutinize in an Oreo-themed mirror after mum's lecture about why women are not allowed to have S. The glottal stop between ga, have, and S made mum sound like she was choking. Yesterday, mum made a model of a vagina using a paper and pen, both branded with Cervarix. She poked the paper to make a hole that was the size of my pinky fingernail. Dela vagina juki ko es, người nam có thể có es với một trăm cô gái đẹp, xong rồi lấy vợ như thường. This is the vagina before s. A man can have s with 100 beautiful women and then get married as if nothing happened. Nu bị lộ thôi tại vì Only the woman loses out because Mom moved the pen up and down to extend the tear. Lỗ nhỏ sẽ thành ra lỗ lớn cho mọi người biết là con gái hư. The little hole will become a big hole so that everyone will know that she is a naughty girl. Ai để ý vậy? Who even cares? I snapped, tearing the vagina paper in half. Right after, I felt numb between my legs while revising week 7 paraphilias for abnormal psychology. I examined my vagina to check if I was really a virgin. After separating my right and left labia, I didn't know what to look for because the mucus and flesh weren't color-coded like they were in my older sister, Jane's, Fundamentals of Obstetrics and Gynecology textbook diagram. I watched the cockroach's front and middle pairs of legs align to form the ulna and radii of two human arms. Its bottom pair of legs straddles to complete the pentagram pose. I remember Dr. Johnson, my tutor for human behavior at Western Sydney University, had the pentagram tattooed on his forearm. His blazer strained at the seams when he reached up to write on the whiteboard. He joked about how he was still a bachelor, even though he had a PhD. He opened his definition of the word ravish with the question, If I told one of you to ravish me, what does that mean? I pour detergent over the cockroach's antennae to make the puddle around it more circular. The bottom legs join at the tips to form a diamond. The arms bend to join in the center of its body. Its mouth is still. The cockroach dies as a ballerina. Violent screech. As they pick up the melody, drawing my attention to the music. I picture chickens clucking at the entrance of Kakarika village. I will probably look like one of them when I die. Mouth gaping open to screech, arms frozen mid-flap. When will I die? Maybe Dr. Johnson will call someone to poison me for undoing his career. I think of Dr. Johnson's 70 replications of studies about statistically significant gender differences in mating strategies and scientific reasons for why men are all jerks, pasted on his office. One time, he made me code themes in the UWS Love Letters Facebook page, saying, According to evolutionary psychology, 
were expecting that women should be more interested in long-term partners while men enjoy short-term hookups. After that, I vowed to disprove evolutionary psychology and get Dr. Johnson sacked. The image of Dr. Johnson howling as he flings publications from his now-former office door makes me grin. I varnish the cockroach in palmolive, making sure that every part of its body is evenly covered. It holds the ballerina pose as I shove the corner of Medical Observer under it, tilting the paper away from me as I carry it to the bin in the kitchen. I return to my room and lie on the bed, palms facing upwards and feet splayed out like the corpse pose in yoga. My eyeballs dig into their sockets as I survey the room. The chipped paint on the ceiling is scabbed skin and the porous patches are ringworms. The anime posters which Jane brought from Smash last year interrupt the cuts lined with peeling wallpaper. She left the Hell Girl poster on my desk because there was no more room on the walls. I was a bigger fan of Hell Girl than she was anyway. I hear a rustle from the pile of patient notes which Jane uses as scrap paper on her table. I wonder if it is another cockroach. I imagine bristly legs brushing against my skin as the cockroach scuttles up my arm. I purse my flaky lips, imagining vomit yellow innards on my tongue. A double chin forms as I crane my neck to scan my arms. They are bare. I inhale Palmolive's lemon scent. Better clean it, better clean it, I say. But my body cements itself into the warm mattress. Kakarika Village's theme plays on loop in the background. I picture chickens pecking around a dirt path, flapping their wings through a wall, because of an error in the game's 3D modeling. The next story is Portrait of a High to Moderate Functioning Alcoholic, written by Courtney Thompson and read by Anna Martin. This story obviously talks about alcohol, and if alcohol is a problem for you, you can call the National 24-7 Alcohol and Other Drugs Hotline on 1-800-250-015. And there are some swears. Portrait of a High to Moderate Functioning Alcoholic Pack yourself in three backpacks full of clothes onto the green vinyl seats of a Blue Mountains line train. Read your first year uni textbook because you think people actually do that. Solidify new friendships on St. Patrick's Day as one girl tells you about how some dude wearing a morph suit introduced her to his goldfish right before they hooked up. Drink Guinness happily even though you think it tastes like oats and watered down Vegemite. Walk home from the station after a night out Sing aloud to no scrubs while wearing headphones as it is 3am and the streets are empty but for your wobbling, warbling self. Once inside, continue dancing in front of your mirror to discern whether or not you can actually dance. Accept the results of this experiment as the probable reason that you have come home alone. Receive a phone call from your mother cancelling your weekend plans for the third time in a row. Consider the fact that you honestly can't remember the last time you saw her. Mix yourself a G&T to toast a feeling that could either be relief or disappointment. Buy one of those wheelie shopping carts that old ladies have to help you haul your groceries home. Hear the crunch of its brittle plastic wheel as you pull it off the bus. Drag it the four blocks to your door and cry over spilt milk. Get invited to a gig your ex-boyfriend's band is playing at. Take a swig straight from the bottle when you see that the girl you are 98.2% sure he's fucking has also clicked attending. Consider masturbating. 
but remove your hands from your pyjama shorts because you simply can't be bothered. Plan to go dog watching in Sydney Park with a friend. Drink wine from opaque coffee cups and talk in grotesque detail about love interests who will most definitely not matter in three months' time. Visit a friend in Melbourne. Go out for drinks with her and her workmates and meet a woman desperate for your group's attention. Stare blankly at her when she assures you, and only you, that she's not a homophobe, though you have done no more than introduce yourself. Skull your beer in a toilet cubicle while waiting for her to leave. Throw back a glass of red to help you read The Twyborn Affair, in the hope it will help you figure out what the fuck is going on. Close the book and finish the bottle. Switch from coffee to green tea because it's healthier. Write a bad four-chord song on the cheap, bright red ukulele your friends got you for your 20th birthday. Regret selling your guitar to pay for the service on your 92 model Mazda that the scrapyard only paid you $50 for six months later. Write a draft ad on Gumtree for other Sydney-based musicians seeking to start a band. Never publish it. Down a six-pack naked, alone in your room, and wonder if the neighbours can hear you trying to harmonise with the bangers on your Get Fit Bitch playlist. Invite your ex and his mate over for dinner. Elicit praise from your housemates and guests for the enchilada sauce you've made from scratch, despite your culinary skills usually being of the chuck a jar of sauce over some carbs variety. Sip your wine in silence as you watch everyone getting along and feel. Feel your heart buzz in your chest like bees in warm honey. Have pesto pasta two nights in a row because you don't have the energy to cook anything of nutritional value. Cringe as you remember the whiskey sour and pesto pasta soup you left in your mate's kitchen sink on Mardi Gras weekend. Try on the linen dress you bought in Poland for 378 zloty. Scoff with amusement at the fat peasant staring at you from the ill-assembled, strategically placed IKEA mirror that sits in the corner of your overpriced matchbox bedroom in an attempt to make it look bigger. Laugh when you remember that you bought the dress specifically to impress the girl you fancy, the actress who you once saw wear a shapeless dress. Think about the way that, while the garment itself resembled a pillowcase, when she wore it, she looked more like the type of girl you'd love to drink cider with in the botanic gardens than one you'd just let decorate your bed. Accept the fact that the Poland dress doesn't even pass as hipster enough to wear out in Newtown. Remember that you are $5,000 in debt. Sit down to write a poem that's been swirling around in your head like shit in a flushing toilet. Scribble the title, Ode to those I've loved, fucked and sworn I'd never text again. Put your pen down to pour yourself a glass of the tawny port your housemate has left, opened on the kitchen windowsill for an undisclosed period of time. Give up on the poem and message a girl on Tinder. Google how to cut down on drinking on your iPad at 1.34am. Resolve to have a sober night. Invite the friend you've slept with a few times over for dinner, the one she never liked. Tell him he can crash here if he wants, but decline his offer to pick up a bottle of wine from the bottle by the station. When he arrives empty-handed, immediately decide you want to be drunk and alone. Hold your breath when he kisses you in an attempt to push past the fact he really, truly smells like plasticine. Eat in chewable silence and ask him to leave shortly after. Do tequila shots with your housemates in the kitchen when he finally does. Research postgraduate degrees you don't want to do at universities you don't want to go to to feign productivity. Send a risky text to an ex. Scrape a bottle cap across your wrist as you wait for her to reply. Call your mother and ask about her new job. 
put the phone on loudspeaker and begin doing the dishes, interjecting at intervals well rehearsed over two decades. Tell her you love her and that you'll visit her at the end of the month. Remain undecided as to whether you will. Accept a casual Sunday shift at the job you spent four months trying to leave. Regret this on Saturday night as you wait for an Uber home from Oxford Street. Pay rent and have $14 left to feed yourself for the next fortnight. Spend $5.30 on a bottle of wine. Email a doctor's certificate to your lecturer for the day you were too anxious to get out of bed and slept until 4.21pm. Taper off your antidepressants and quit social media cold turkey. Stare at a blank document titled Novel and wonder if you should have done it the other way around. Ignore the train station request to stand behind the yellow line. Feel your hair lick your face as the trains squeal past you. Envy their mobility. My date says that the world is ending. We have passed the ecological tipping point, and now, no matter what we do, the world will continue to heat up until it is the same temperature as Venus. No one is talking about this, even though it is a fact, and it is happening now, and it is happening fast. We are probably the last generation of people on Earth. My date also says that as a regular New Zealander, she has been drinking since the age of 13 and can drink anyone under the table. I don't doubt this because I'm already too drunk to tell if the apocalypse thing sounds true or not. I say, don't tell me the world is ending. I only just recently realized I'm going to die. I used to think I wasn't afraid of death, but that was only because I had never thought about the actual moment when you realize this is it, you are about to die. She says she can't believe more people don't already know about the ecological tipping point. She says, do you want to kiss? And I say, what, even though I heard what she said? She says, do you want to kiss? And I say, okay, and we kiss. While we are kissing, I think about all the straight people around us and if they are watching and if anyone will say anything. And I think about the earth reaching out and out and out from beneath us in every direction, all round and full of hot lava. When we finish kissing, I leave my hand on her knee so that she can tell I like her and I wasn't just kissing her because she suggested it. She says, I like you. I always thought she was kind of mean, but since we have been going out, she is always doing this cute smile that doesn't really look like the type of face a mean person would make. I say I like you too. Too bad the apocalypse is coming. She says, well, not in the next year. Then I wish I hadn't said that because now it seems like I have imagined we will be together long enough for our relationship to be interrupted by the end of the world, which is at least more than one year away. I go inside to buy more drinks. In the bar, there is a band made up of all men, and they are playing a cover of Untouched by the Veronicas. While I am waiting for the drinks, I have an emotional flashback to when I used to hear this song on the radio in high school and think about how much I loved my best friend. When I come back outside, it is brighter than it was before, which is strange because it is the late evening and it should be getting darker. Everyone is looking up at the sky, and they are all looking kind of freaked out. And while I am standing there looking at everyone looking at the sky, it just keeps getting brighter and brighter. I walk over to my date and say what's going on, but before she can answer, I look at the sky finally, and I see that the thing that everyone is freaking out about is a huge, huge comet, on fire and hurtling towards us. I feel a melting feeling in my stomach. I take a sip of my beer, but it only makes the melting feeling worse. I say, well, it looks like you were wrong about how much time we have. Then I wish I hadn't said that because we are probably about to die and this isn't really the time to be rude, even in a joking way. She takes the other beer from me and takes a sip. I wonder if she has the melting feeling too or if knowing that the world would slowly burn up anyway has prepared her slightly more for this moment. She says, do you want to kiss again? And I say, okay. 
While we are kissing, I think about how I will never get to tell another person I love them because the world is ending while I'm on a third date. I think about how much vast emptiness the comet flew through before it got here. I think about God and being a part of God. All my life, I have been one part of God, and now I am about to find out what being a different part is like. That was Apocalypse Story by Mary Schlossberg. It was originally written during a 2017 Wheeler Center Hot Desk Fellowship. You can find more of Mira's work via Twitter. Search for Mira Schlossberg, that's M-I-R-A-S-C-H-L-O-S-B-E-R-G, just the one S in there. Courtney Thompson's portrait of a high to moderate functioning alcoholic was read by Anna Martin and was originally recorded for the outstanding LGBTQIA plus short story competition. Both Mira and Courtney won awards in the 2017 competition. The competition for 2019 is now open for entries. Go apply or listen to previous entries at outstandingstories.net. Courtney won the Queer Stories Prize that year. You can hear her read the story herself at Queer Stories, and we'll include a link to it in our show notes. Again, if drinking is a problem for you, you can access free and confidential advice about alcohol and other drugs by calling the National Alcohol and Other Drug Hotline in Australia on 1-800-250-015. Thanks also to Teresa Savage for originally linking us up with these stories. Bailey Sharp is a cartoonist and co-art editor of The Lifted Brow. Find more of her work on Instagram by searching for No Bailey. That's N-O Bailey. That big report was originally read at Read To Me, a comics reading night in Sydney. Find them on Facebook by searching for Read To Me. Frances Ann is a writer at the Finishing School Collective. You can discover more about her work on their website. We'll have a link in the show notes. Lull was originally published in Seizure. And thanks also on this story to Felicity Castagna. This episode of Or It Didn't Happen was produced and presented by me. I'm Sasha Rosen. I'll be back next week with more stories from Sydney and beyond. <laughs>